when they do surveys now of what's your approval rating of socialists, it's actually higher than approval rating for Democrats and Republicans. But it's just that the meaning has changed. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we continue to talk about political terms. Last time we talked about some very practical ones that exist in the real world, uh, bureaucracies and Previous to that, we were talking about empire and all of these terms. Let's take a turn toward the more theoretical. The thing I want to talk about first is left versus right. These are not political parties or anything like that. They're terms that are used to describe political theory. Yes, and they're being used more and more in everyday political discourse now. It's interesting. For a long time, these were confined to a small number of people who wrote about and and seriously discussed uh, political theory. But now they're being used all over the place. And um, we can talk a little bit about why that might be. These terms originated from the 1789 French Revolution. It started when the king called on the National Assembly trying to raise some more funds, and it developed into a full-blown you could call it a constitutional crisis in which it really changed the nature of politics in France. And those members of the National Assembly who supported the revolution sat to the assembly president's left and the supporters of the king sat to his right. So a right winger in this particular case, those on the right were conservative and those on the left were radicals. So it was generalized later to label advocates of change, leftists, and those who were conservative or reactionary uh, being called rightists. And this has expanded beyond that. Yes. Politics of the left are are those that I think generally assume that there are systems of government that can be put into place for the general good, and politics of the right are leaned, if you just take these terms to their extreme... Uh, the politics of the right are toward government can't do anything for you. So we don't need taxes and we don't need a general welfare or these kinds of programs. Um, well, that's true in this country. I think we're kind of special in Europe. Uh, left and right are often used very differently. And you have plenty of people who consider themselves on the right who are big supporters of a state-sponsored health care, for instance, and even large government and all kinds of things. So for a long time, we used to pretty much not talk about left and right in the United States um, because we didn't really have a left and right. The, the Democrats and the Republicans were so similar in their economic policies and their ideas that it didn't justify this sort of extreme language that left and right were felt to be. Uh, th- those were used more for for Europeans. The term left in the late 20th century got associated with conservatives or by conservatives mainly with radicals that they considered beyond the pale politically, socialists, communists, and anarchists. Then it moved on in more 
contemporary times to refer to liberals or progressives as leftists. And this was meant to be a smear. The idea was that uh, leftists had such toxic associations in American politics, especially because of its association with communism during the Cold War, that if you called a liberal a leftist, uh, then you were going to damage them terribly politically. What seems to have happened instead is that because it got so overused, uh, the term has gotten kind of neutralized. And the Cold War is over. The younger generation isn't so sensitized to worrying about communism and socialism. And so the fact that uh, Nancy Pelosi might be called a leftist, for instance, it just brings a shrug. I don't think it has the powerful effect that it'd like. But the older Republican politicians still really enjoy using that term. It is fallen by the wayside, though, thankfully. Uh, when you put it that way, that rings true to me, that uh, it's more of an older generation thing to use that term as a smear. And, of course, there's no such thing as a rightist, right? You could be a leftist, but you can't be a rightist. That's not a smear. Yeah, uh, yeah. We'll use terms like far right or hard right. Yeah, and that those those have come associated now with these uh, racist uh, Ku Klux Klan, the so-called alt right, and and mm -hmm. all that kind of thing. That's about the only place that we hear the term or right wing. You had a comment about those who consider themselves true leftists, that is, say, socialists. Mm, sure, yeah, don't like being called liberals. No, they don't like being called liberals. Uh, the example I turn to is the old Phil Oak song, "Love Me, I'm a Liberal." It's a uh, diatribe against liberal politics of the 1960s and not going far enough to defend civil rights and not going far enough to defend social justice and, and so on. Most liberals uh, in the U.S. here, and let's talk about U.S. politics for a second, most, most liberal uh, leaning toward the left but mainstream people who are politically active are not out there on the streets uh, protesting, you know, where I think Phil Oaks would like to have them <laughs> and it'd be a little bit more radical in their politics. Well, it's not only that. Those of us who became very politically active in the, the era of Kennedy and Johnson administrations, uh, both of them being considered liberal socially in a lot of ways, were deeply disappointed in them in some regards. And so that whole generation of activists tended to distinguish themselves as radicals rather than liberals. Now, what happened with the word liberal, of course, is that the, the right wing, particularly uh, Republicans in Congress, took to describing liberal as a derisive term that was just awful, you know, liberal policies are just toxic. And the cowardly Democrats <laughs> hunkered down and stopped referring to themselves as liberal. And the term got to be just a term of opprobrium and lost it's positive power. Every once in a while, some politician speaks up and say, hey, there's nothing wrong with being a liberal. I, I'm a liberal. I'm proud of it. But there's not very many of them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're terribly afraid people won't vote for them if they say they're liberals. And it's often pointed out that the first liberals were conservatives by today's standards in the 19th century. Somebody was in favor of free trade and business operating freely and so on was a liberal. But the word really changed its meaning and became something quite different in the 20th century. It's one of those where you can't rely on etymology to say what the word really means. Now, before we get off left and right, I want to sidetrack a little bit because I want to talk about style 
these are not political parties, but you often see them capitalized when people write them out. The left and the right. Uh -huh. What's your take on that? Do you have a, a style that you prefer for that? You know, I haven't really thought about it. But <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and now that you asked the question, I wouldn't capitalize them. I think if you do, you're implying something more organized and coherent than is really the case in American politics. I would lean toward not capitalizing them myself, but I think what you'll find is uh, a, a, an article where the style is imposed when these terms are used as a noun to capitalize them. And it may, they may make the distinction if the, if the article is really a straightforward piece that is describing left versus right politics it might be more common to capitalize those terms to make the distinction that you're talking about those in a more formal way. But I tend to agree with you. It's not the kind of thing that you would want to capitalize. It's not a really a prop. They're not really proper nouns. Right. And I, I was using the terms left wing and right wing a moment ago. Mm -hmm. um, and those, of course, were the wings of the hall originally in which the parliament was meeting. But it came to mean way out on the fringe, not just the whole area to which one party belongs. And now in the U.S., it's almost always used negatively to describe one's opponents as extremists. So you're a right wing nut or you're a left wing extremist. And so if the wing is in there, then almost nobody says, say, somebody might say, I belong to the progressive wing of the democratic party i suppose i don't think i've ever heard anybody say that though it's definitely something that's used mostly in a negative sense mm -hmm. and you just mentioned right wing nut or a left wing nut the term wing nut can be used independently yes. of left and right, right? yes yeah yeah but <laughs> just that's very popular nut. yeah borrowed from hardware of course mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah 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 uh it, it's a funny visual discussions of European politics in the past, when you talked about a leftist, it would be somebody who really wanted to see socialism as a redistribution of wealth and nationalization of industries and all kinds of strong regulations to protect workers and, and so on. And that just didn't exist in the United States. There, there were There have been periods where there were liberal leftist movements in the U.S. around the turn of the previous century and for a while in the 30s. But since the 50s, since 1950 or so, not not really. But now we have this phenomenon of people like Bernie Sanders, a few others. Uh, we have some local politicians who call themselves socialists. And they really, by European standards, are not socialists. They are for national health programs and, and they have want more regulation of banks and so on, but they're not against capitalism. They're not trying to overthrow the system and replace it with a socialist economic system. And what they've done is uh, for a, a whole generation of young people, they've denatured or uh, drawn the sting out of the term socialist. And you get this amusing thing with older politicians uh, harumphing and calling somebody's policies socialist, like Obama or Hillary Clinton, and it just goes right over the heads of the younger voters uh, or and non-voters who say, well, what's wrong with that? 
Mm-hmm. And we know what they're for. And uh, we kind of like that. Socialism is good. Great. When they do surveys now of what's your approval rating of socialists, it's actually higher than approval rating for Democrats and Republicans. But it's just that the meaning has changed. But you've got these people in authority in Congress who think that they're really slinging a, 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 a very powerful weapon against their enemies by calling them socialists, which just doesn't go anywhere at all with a lot of people. Especially the countries in Europe, in the, the Scandinavian countries and so on, that are socialists or call themselves socialist governments. I think that those are very often admired, looked to as the standard for providing for the general welfare of the people. But at the same time, they don't have the stain of uh, that the Soviet Union had, for example, and communism right. and and all of the authoritarian aspects of, of that. So uh, I think there's just a general wider acceptance and a little bit more enlightenment about that and what the term actually does mean. Well, or, or the term has changed its meaning. I mean, certainly when Marx used socialism, it meant something quite different from what a, a typical Labour Party politician in Britain means when they use it. Right. And I don't think Marx would recognize Sweden as a truly socialist society. No, and, and a lot of those countries have made their economies work by taxing businesses heavily rather than just taking them over. Many of them uh, denationalized, privatized industries some decades ago. And Britain famously did a lot of that, but there's also some in Scandinavia. And one can make the case that their socialisms are made possible by their capitalism, that the, the industries that buy and sell make enough profit and are successful enough that they're able to provide all these socialist benefits. Yeah, you can't just spread around money if there's not any around, right? And it's it's interesting to note, too, that most of the socialist governments that had tried to adhere to a model of, say, communism or socialism in a more extreme form – Soviet Union, China, Vietnam, and so on, uh, Cuba, have consistently reverted to private ownership of land, private businesses, a whole range of capitalist things to prop up their economies. And even North Korea, which is the most retrograde of all these old communist countries, has uh, their economy is actually doing much better than it did, and largely because they've now allowed people to buy homes and set up small businesses and run them and keep the profits and so on. Well, you keep arguing the case that socialism has changed its name. So let's talk about socialist. What 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 is what is socialist? What does that mean? And we'll talk about the well, history of the meaning or the the variations on it? Well, it emerged in the 19th century and it had a host of meanings because there were all these different kinds of radicalism. There was the labor union movements and then there were uh, people who wanted to privatize industry and you had a co-op movement. Uh, Lamarck is a famous leader there where you voluntarily group together and set up an enterprise and share the wealth. Not all socialists were revolutionaries by any means. A lot of them were very peaceful in their orientation. Many of them were religious. There were all these communes, especially in the United States, who were set up where they shared all their goods in common. So the word from the beginning had just this fuzzy origin. It was a 
catch-all, and it tended to mean to people who were against it the worst of its kind, that is, anarchists. Most anarchists were peaceful, but there was a handful who believed in assassination as a, a major tool in terrorism of various kinds. And so there was a tendency to lump all leftists, all socialists together with those people. I wrote my master's thesis on uh, the only two 19th century novels of significance that dealt with leftist politics. And one was uh, Conrad's Under Western Eyes, which is uh, got the stereotype in it of the, the bomber who wants to just destroy things. And, and he's the ex exemplary radical. And Emil Zola's Germinal, which treats a wide range of political leftist views in, in, in extreme detail. And it's extremely unusual because uh, newspapers, uh, popular press, certainly novels were not going into detail at all and looking at the different aspects of this. But generally speaking, as uh, labor unions became more popular and often associated with socialist movements, there was uh, a lot of positive attitude in Europe toward the term socialist, enough so that in the 20s, when Hitler was forming his party, he called it the Nationalsozialistische Deutsche Arbeitpartei, the mm -hmm. Socialist German Work Party, Workers' Party. But he was fiercely opposed to the actually socialist party, the Deutsche Sozialistische Partei, um, which was really socialist. It was more democratic and less dictatorial than the Russian uh, type. But that's what he utterly wanted to destroy. And he set up a system that was neither capitalist nor socialist uh, on his own model and we all know how that turned out, and and it got abbreviated to Nazi, it originally as an insult, but uh, got adopted by the Nazis themselves. So um, Karl Marx, who's considered the father of modern communism, was a socialist and always referred to socialism and himself as a socialist. But socialists usually distinguish themselves now from communists, and that's largely on the basis of saying that socialists are more democratic, they're not in favor of forcing a change in the economy and uh, subjugating people and censoring the press and all that kind of thing. But socialism really, as a concept, preceded the modern idea of communism. So a lot of them were very decentralized and meant to be just sort of local and, as I said, religious and many of them were pacifists as well but nothing like what we saw in the union of soviet socialist republics the ussr mm -hmm. uh, the doed has a definition of socialism which is quite long but worth reading a theory or a system of social organization based on state or collective ownership and regulation of the means of production distribution and exchange for the common benefit of all members of society advocacy or practice of such a system, especially as a political movement. Now also, and here's where we get into the change in meaning, any of various systems of liberal social democracy which retain a commitment to social justice and social reform or feature some degree of state intervention in the running of the economy. That is so much milder than the original meaning. And then the range of application of the term is broad. It is typically understood to involve the elevation of the social position and interests of the working class, especially through redistribution of land or wealth, nationalization of industry and services, and the creation of workers' cooperatives. 
It is sometimes used synonymously with, especially, Soviet communism, although in some Marxist contexts, it is used specifically to denote a transitional stage between the overthrow of capitalism and the realization of communism. That wasn't one of Marx's ideas, but it did become sort of a standard notion among leftists that you had to go through a socialist phase before you could get to a communist phase, and the communist phase would involve the withering away of the government and a free, no money involved, people just doing what from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Uh, they just sharing the work and the the fruits of the work that would be communism but on the way there you needed to have socialism where there was still a, a centralized government the anarchists of course said uh-uh if you set up one of these so-called socialist governments with a strong centralized government it's just going to hang on to power it doesn't destroy itself it doesn't invent uh, a new kind of freedom and um, to me that argument made a great deal of sense but objectively, you can't define true socialism any more than you can define true Christianity, really. When you encounter the word, you can't know much at all about what it means without further investigating the notions of the person or the group using it. There isn't a single agreed-upon definition for it. Well, when you go back to your Oxford English Dictionary definition and you get to that sentence there, it features some degree of state intervention in the running of the economy. That suggests to me that there isn't a political system that is not socialist, right? Yeah. There's regulation of the economy. Well, I guess that what it would exclude is the libertarians, those who believe that the only role of the government should be to have a national defense. Right. Way with the IRS and, and all regulations and so on right but if you had if you take that definition of libertarianism you would still need to have taxes to support the yeah. military and yeah. to put a system into place that would keep the system that is in place intact to you know invasion from foreign enemies and so on right and i thought it was entertaining to think about a relate word that's related in spelling but not in meaning and that's socialite this is a word I think that's used only by journalists and means somebody who belongs to the upper crust, who socializes a good deal, somebody who goes to parties and fundraisers and uh, charity auctions and grand balls and so on. <laughs> Usually younger people, but not always. Those are called socialites. Uh, yeah. Not usually socialists. No, don't confuse the two. <laughs> Let's end on that usage advice. Uh, so that's a socialist. What's a communist? Well, uh, they really, uh, usually communist is meant to say that you should abolish all private ownership, get rid of companies by handing them over to either a, a centralized or a local control by the workers. All property would be vested in the community and in its extreme forms. Uh, nobody even owns their own home or their clothes or their toothpaste, although that's uh, more extreme than most uh, actual communists were willing to go. And the organization of labor for the common benefit of all of its members. So that's that's what communism is. Now, the concept is much older than the word. You can look at medieval monasteries, for example, where when you entered, you had to give up all your worldly goods and many times endow them to the monastery. And the monks 
would have no property. They wouldn't even own their cassocks that they were wearing. It was not egalitarian, however. This was a form of communism in which uh, there was strict authority. Uh, the abbot would have a lot to say, or the abbess, over the monks or nuns. But there have been many utopian communities that were communist, uh, sharing their labor and goods in common. Of course, the, the model for all this is the Republic by Plato. But Engels argued that a lot of early hunter-gatherer groups lived in a state of what he called primitive communism. And so he was arguing against people who said, well, you can't have communism because wanting to get rich and owning a lot of property is naturally human and human nature doesn't change. And he says, well, look at the past. If you read the uh, the Odyssey, it's interesting. When Odysseus lands on a new island or someplace where he's been stranded, the first thing that they do is give him a lot of food and presents and stuff. And that was part of the social custom then. It was a little bit like the Northwest Indians potlatch tradition, where you got power by giving away wealth. And uh, there's an argument that in earlier societies, the ability of somebody to provide for the whole group, like the hunter going out and killing an animal and then taking his share last, letting everybody else have it. That's what made you influential and important. So Engels is arguing that that shows that there is no such thing as this natural desire for greed, for, for wealth, um, that prestige could have to do with cooperation instead. It, you can also find that in some anarchist writing in the 19th century, the same argument that this human nature argument is a product of capitalism rather than the basis of it. So his, his argument is once we lived in a state of primitive communism, so it's not impossible to shift back to that again. That, that was the argument. Well, that's an interesting theory. Communism has never been implemented in anything like that sense. In a well, except in very broad, small groups. Yeah, in a broad scale, I should say. Yeah, yeah. and they usually don't last very long. Yeah. And the, even the co-op movement, I mean, uh, we, we've belonged to various co-ops, and um, some of them work better than others, but the transition from the original owners to the next group of owners is a difficult one. For instance, in uh, Port Angeles near here, there used to be a large number of plywood mills, which were run as co-ops. The, uh, the uh, workers actually owned shares in the company and split up the profits among themselves. But what happened when these guys wanted to retire? Well, they needed to sell their shares so that they could retire. And as they did, those shares got bought up and now they're privately owned. Mm -hmm. So um, we'll put up a link to a good page that gives you a list of communist societies that predated the USSR. Um, but communism in modern sense usually means a political doctrine or movement based on revolutionary Marxism seeking the overthrow of capitalism through a proletarian revolution. Proletariat was the work, what's called the working class, which is getting smaller and smaller in this country. The people who work for a wage and not making their money directly from profits and whose labor is mostly manual usually is what they were thinking of. The whole idea of the service economy and so on really doesn't figure into classical Marxist thought and the social ownership of the means of production, the creation of a classless society. But all of that was just a theory. Uh, those communist states that copied the Soviet Union 
were highly centralized and undemocratic. And when they used the word democratic in their names, it meant for the people, not by the people or of the people. And they were highly oppressive, still are some of them. Western Marxists who uh, thought Marx was a good idea but didn't disliked the governments of China and Russia often referred to countries like that as state capitalist, which is an interesting term. Uh, which to me works even better in modern China, where they've gone nutso for investment banking and stock markets and, you know, encouraging everybody to get rich. Uh, just the opposite of everything that Chairman Mao ever stood for. Uh, and yet they still call it socialist or communist. It's actually Marxist theory with capitalist practice. Now, I think all of this serves as a good background to talk about some of these other terms as they get implemented a little bit more practically and labels that get applied, liberal, progressive, libertarian, conservative, reactionary, and so on. But uh, I'd like to keep that for the next part of our conversation. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Okay, you're welcome, Tom. Talk to you next time. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening. <laughs>